All right, everybody, welcome to this live special edition of the Compliance Guy Roundtable. We're going to be joined by Stephanie Allard here in just a moment or two. Uh, but until then, uh, I am joined by Paul Spencer and Scott Kraft, gentlemen, and I use that term very loosely. <laughs> As who walked in. <laughs> How are you guys? Good. Good. How are Good. you doing? All right, I'm doing well, and it looks like Stephanie Allard is uh, joining our feed here, so we'll keep this thing moving along. Lots of stuff for us to be able to talk about. I'm doing well. I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, Scott, you, looks like you're back in Washington State. That is correct. I'm happy to be coming to you live from the West Coast, so it's early morning here. Well, early-ish. Absolutely, and Paul, I, I, I know where you are, Paul. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, hope of a home of a high of 39 degrees. That's welcome, outstanding. Welcome to the high hibernation season. So uh, I love it. I love it. This is the uh, beer, cheese, pretzel, and Philly sausage se and sausage uh, season, right? Yep. December 18th, I'll be having a cheesesteak day at my house. Uh, so anybody in the immediate area, just drop up. I I may actually. I kid you not. I may actually wind up doing like a fly-in you know how some people like some people do a drive-in i may do a fly-in for the day um, i am five minutes from the milwaukee airport good so i could literally come in have a have a a, a, a steak sandwich or some sausage and steak, uh cheese steak cheese steaks and then head right back to the airport shortly thereafter so i'm looking forward to that uh and stephanie it's good to see you i know you are in Tennessee. Yes, exactly. Good. Loving Good. the weather. Much different than New York, so I love it. New York started to snow today, and we're down here in the sun, so that's all I need. <laughs> good deal. Good deal. And uh, all right. So good. Everybody's healthy. Everybody's well. We have the holiday season upon us, but that doesn't mean that we should be letting our foot off the gas pedal because the government definitely is not. And, um, you know, I, I've said this, you know, today I was very fortunate. I was uh, I was um, humbled and privileged to be able to give a presentation for the Tennessee Medical Association. Um, awesome organization, great group of people, had a ton of questions. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, I talked about and we've talked about this as well as a, as a team is 2021 has been the year of the audit. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, not only has it been the year of the audit, it's actually been the year of the governmental raid. Um, I think we've had more raids this year by three-letter entities serving criminal warrants on clients than we've had in years past. And I think all three of you have been engaged in working on these federal matters with me. So it, it's been an interesting year. And and I'm telling folks, look, don't don't rest on this thing because 2022 is going to be the year of the audit on steroids. That's what I'm anticipating. So lots of stuff to talk about. Um, we are back in business with CMS's targeted, probed, and educate. Sounds like a fun Friday evening, doesn't it? First they target you, then they probe you, and then they're going to educate you about it. Um he, 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 so here's the thing. It's really interesting, right? Because there's been some changes to the TPE program. Important for everybody to keep this in mind. Remember that if you were in phase one, phase two, or even phase three uh, prior to the pandemic, they have completely closed the books on that. All of those audits are closed. They're done. It doesn't matter where you're at. Now, just because they've closed those audits does not mean that they cannot or will not re-audit you. Odds are, it's just going to be a matter of time before you get that TPE letter that several of our clients have already received saying, welcome to the backside of the pandemic. We are now engaged. Now, it has gone from a 20% error rate to an 18% error rate. So the margin of error is now two percentage points less. So folks, they're tightening their belts. They're, they're pulling harder on the reins. And I think this is something that y'all need to be prepared for. But as we enter into the holiday season, that can only mean one thing. 
the release of the final rules. So we're not going to talk about the OPPS today. We're not going to talk about some of those hospital-based ones at this point. Uh, Jordan Johnson and I and uh, Eric Rubenstein will we'll, we'll be covering the hospital inpatient and the OPPS outpatient uh, stuff uh, tomorrow. But I want to talk about the physician final rule. And I know Scott and Paul, you guys have been um, engaged in uh, taking a look at what's going on. And I want to start there. So I know one of the first big issues is split shared service, because this was something that Scott, you and Paul both addressed early on in 2021. Now we have a final rule. So what what says the final rule? Uh, well, it looks like they are finalizing, at least in 2023, this is the ultimate uh, plan, is that the biller of a split shared service will be defined pretty much exclusively by the provider who documents that they've spent more time than the other provider uh, when each provider has seen the patient. So it really uh, will ultimately be similar to what they proposed, uh, a simple time calculation, right? Uh, and I think you know, as we take in the rule, uh, what they seem to be suggesting, at least at the moment, was is that each provider would have a face-to-face -face responsibility uh, with the patient, and then the time can potentially include other activities that are done in a non-face-to-face -face way in conjunction either with the current rules for inpatient services uh, or where we may end up in 2023. I think there's been a feeling that there's going to be uh, some some requirement changes in 2023 to codes other than the office codes. But, you know, from my perspective, I think we've got two things to, to contemplate, right? So in 2022, there's this notion that uh, the provider that provides the more substantive portion of the history exam and MDM or spends more of the time can build a service. But in 2023, um, it will be the time that will be the ultimate driving factor. And, and, and you know, for me, historically, um, I, it, the viability of the split shared model, at least in the way it's practiced now, is rooted in the fact that the uh, PA or the nurse practitioner historically spends the majority of the time. And the physician either comes in front or behind uh, and does his or her own work that is in some ways a, a validation, in some ways perhaps uh, a benefit to the patient because they may see two medical providers in one day. You know, I don't think operationally practices are built. I don't think uh, the hospital structure is built for this to be, you know, in order to build it under the physician, the physician has to spend, you know, the majority of the time. It's like, why, why bring the nurse practitioner in at all at that point? Right. Well, uh, the one thing that the final rule did, uh, and they repeated this quite often through uh, the cataloging of the proposals and the comments to those proposals and then to the uh, finalization of the proposals was that incident two is still sticking around for the office setting. And when we're talking about split shared services, we're basically talking about other outpatient settings. We're talking about uh, inpatient observation, hospital, nursing home, critical care, emergency department. And you mentioned that in 2023, they're basically going by a preponderance of time. To me, uh, just reading the tea leaves, that sets up a very definitive possibility that the office outpatient E&M services, which are now medical decision-making or time, that type of E&M model is going to spread to a great portion, if not all, of the rest of evaluation and management services, regardless of setting, is what that seems to be telegraphing. Because instead of uh, the preponderance of history exam medical decision-making in time in 2022, whereas 2023, it's all time, which would lend, uh, it would lead me to believe that that is going to telegraph changes to E&M services coming, not next year, but the year after. I, I agree. And I think, I think folks need to um, really pay close attention to this stuff. You know, I just got an email today, you know, so we're talking about split shared services, but you also brought up incident two. And I got an email today and I can't make this stuff up. It's from a doctor 
who says, um, have an individual uh, buddy of mine. Uh, they always start with, I have a buddy of mine. Have a buddy of mine who's been billing a ton of these injections and getting reimbursed at $5,950 per injection. Um, and it's tied to one of my favorite topics, amnio fluid. And the question was, um, <laughs> I'm going to get to the incident two part. You guys are all laughing about this, but let me tell you something. I was gosh, let me stop for just a second. Amniotic fluid outside of a couple of limited instances for ocular, or if you're using a derivative for wound for burns, it is not a covered service for muscular skeletal use. Okay. Having a 361 FDA, I feel like I'm in New York. Hey, <laughs> having a 361 <laughs> approval is not an FDA approval. It is an FDA clearance. And there is a significant difference between being cleared being versus being approved. And these on, I want to be careful with what I say. These individuals that are out there coming into your practice and they're telling you, uh, we have a placenta. That's the new one that they're using is a placenta derivative. Or we have this amniotic fluid. Medicare issued a Q code. Folks, the issuance of a HCPCS code does not mean that there's a policy or that the service is reimbursable. And I've had several people say to me, well, Sean, if that's the case, why, why have they created an allowable for it? Because it's done by a subcommittee to say, in the event we reimburse for this, here's what the reimbursement would be. The absence of an LCD does not mean you have the ability to bill for something as if there were a policy. That's when a clawback situation happens. Boy, I don't know what's going on with me. Yeah. My hand is all over the place. To, well, just really to summarize that thought, uh, it was as true in the time of Homer as, as it is today. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Uh, you know, chances are it's going to just uh, come back to bite you. Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. So he, here's the thing. And, and I do want to give a quick shout out because my really good friend, Jared Walker from Dollar Four is on is online with us live today. And uh, I just want to give a shout out, Jared. So glad that you joined. Uh, I know you think the West Coast is the best coast. And I, I endorse. I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you're with us, buddy. And, I, and I, I endorse I that you. comment, if for no other reason than I can stay awake for late, late East Coast things. That's right. That's right. Um, okay. So um, the incident, two things. So I had today during my TMA session, um, I had an individual pose a question about the fact that if a provider is not, so here, here was the scenario, and you guys helped me with this one. If the organization had a contract physician that was with the organization and that contract physician established plans of care for beneficiaries and that physician is no longer with the group, can the non-physician practitioner continue to render services incident to under a plan of care that was devised by a physician who's no longer in that group and who other physicians probably don't have any understanding for what that plan of care involves. What is your thoughts? Stephanie, you've been really quiet. I want to, I want to bring you into this. Okay. So my first thought is, uh, first of all, regardless of, of what's right or wrong, that's only going to cover you for so long because under incident two, it's the follow-up of stable conditions most of the time, patients are coming exacerbated, new complaints. It all goes out the window at that point. So that's the first thing. Even if the practice thinks this is okay, it's very short term. Um, 
Secondly, you know, I think there would be issues because one of the things that I know has really been a great area for myself and sometimes when we talk as a team too, is the fact of how often does a physician have to see a patient? If someone is really well controlled in their, you know, diabetic regimen and all of that, how often does a physician need to come in and see the patient? And we don't always have that in writing. And that's a great, that's a great, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on what you're saying, but that's a great point, right? Because under CMS guidelines, it says on a reasonable basis. So it's it's completely subjective. Go ahead, finish your thought. I'm sorry. That's all right. So I was just going to say, based on... The incorrect way we already see incident two used, I would uh, predict that that particular practice would continue seeing this patient for at least a year or more and then come back when they're caught on an audit and ask why it was wrong. So, and at that point you don't have physician involvement and they're gone, the initial one's gone. So what do you do? Absolutely. So, you know, part of my explanation, what I gave as feedback today to the the good folks that were uh, online, was to say, look, if that physician is no longer with your group, the smartest thing that you can do is to have them see another physician in the group, get established with that provider, get a new plan of care, and then you can have the non-physician practitioner continue to carry out that new plan of care. However, if, if you do not want to have them see a physician, then I, I suggested that the nurse practitioner create a new plan of care under himself or herself, but with the understanding moving forward, all services have to be billed under his or her NPI number. There's no incident to. Thoughts? And, and, well, here's just another side thing to think about. Whenever you have a physician leave your practice and you are in the habit of employing NPs and PAs, it's a really good idea at the time that physician leaves to review the collaborative agreements that you have on file in your practice. Uh, because once that doctor leaves, you don't have collaborative agreements that uh, involve that physician. So realistically, your best option is not only to restart the treatment clock uh, by bringing in another physician, but you wanna make sure that your collaborative agreements are up to date as well. Such a great point, Paul. Such a great point that so many folks overlook. And just real quick for, uh, I know we have folks that are following us on, good Lord, six different platforms right now, in addition to what we have on LinkedIn. Folks, our chat feature is on. So if you have any pressing coding, billing, compliance, documentation questions, we're here to answer those for you. But we're going to continue talking about the topics that we have. Scott, you were just about to jump in and say something. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah, so I'm going to be a modest devil's advocate. I think all the points that have been made are good so far in terms of, you know, from a practice management perspective, you should think about policies on the frequency of intervention by physicians to begin with, uh, and certainly the issues around collaboration agreements. But we do all agree, assuming the physician who created the plan of care has not left the organization, that that physician does not need to be the personal direct supervisor of an individual visit. So my devil's advocate piece of this is, let's say now everybody who knows me talk about incident two, I generally don't like it to begin with, but I think about the physician created plan of care as essentially, uh, if we were to use football terms, it's the game plan for the nurse practitioner or the PA to operate under. And so I would assume unless this physician left under difficult circumstances, I would generally assume that that was created in good faith. So if we had instances in the in the sort of near term following the departure of that physician, where a plan of care was in place that he or she created, and the nurse practitioner was operating under it, separate all the things that we talked about in terms of the patient introducing other problems, all the stuff that we don't like about incident two to begin with, then I don't really see a problem there. I do think we have to be mindful of you know, as Paul said, collaboration agreements, and we do need to be mindful of, as I often see, these incident to visit situations just go on for years and years and years, and the physician never comes in. But I do think, I wouldn't necessarily say, well, we have to immediately get every one of these patients in to see another physician, and we can't bill incident to otherwise. Uh, I just think it's a judgment, right? Because I, I think of that plan of care as being more directed to uh, the person who's operating under the physician, and I don't think it's it's now useless because that person has left. 
No, and and I think and I think you raise a great point, right? And that's 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 not quite what I was saying, because you can still ha- as long as there's a physician supervision, it doesn't matter who created the plan of care. The problem that you run into is a physician's risk aversion, right? Their lever their level of comfort in knowing that a service is going to be billed under their name for a patient who they probably don't have any engagement with. Or if they did, it was so long ago because it was created under another physician. That was the point. I agree with you. It, it, it doesn't render it doesn't render the plan of care impotent, right? It, it, it's just a way of covering your assets, mm-hmm. right? To be able to say, we should have another physician. Uh, you thought I was going to say something else, right? <laughs> I always, I, I've, I've known you long enough to hold for the second syllable. <laughs> Who's, who said a compliance roundtable can't have some chuckles? All right. Go ahead, Paul. You were going to say something, please. Uh, well, uh, here's another thing to think about. Uh, you know, we're moving towards a payment model. It sometimes uh, feels like an iceberg and sometimes it feels like flying cars that uh, will focus on qua- uh, pay for performance and quality indicators. Uh, and we were talking a little bit about uh, how often does that physician need to see the patient? Uh, for a certain condition. Well, that goes straight to your standards of care. I mean, and it's something that every single practice needs to think about. I would imagine that if you are a practice that is owned by a hospital, if you're in a large hospital-owned physician group, you're already having those conversations because everything in a hospital environment is tied to quality of care. But if you're an independent physician, an independent group, this is something you really need to think about. This, you know, yes, everything, you know, it's the science of medicine. You know, I, I say it a lot. The science of medicine is different from other uh, sciences in that everything that is applied to the patient is most of the time in the doctor's head. You know, right. so the standard of care is there. The problem is it's not on paper. Uh, and, you know, part it's time to start thinking much more broadly about those quality indicators, how that's going to be put in. Do we have uh, electronic tools for decision support? Do we have uh, different things that work into that calculus that identify exactly when a patient with this one or two or three chronic problems is going to be seen next? And what's that standard of care? Again, a lot easier to do for hospital-based physician groups because everybody from the C-suite down is thinking about that payment model. It's something that I'm not seeing in the independent physician groups, and it's something well, that and, really can see. And I think it's a very interesting point because even as I tie to tie together what we just talked about with incident two, right? There's this part of me taking in what Sean said about you know the physician not necessarily wanting a claim to be billed under him or her without that understanding, I think in, in a world of more employed physicians, when we get into these groups of even seven or eight, nine physicians, the average physician, I suspect if I were to talk to him or her, would not have a good understanding of what necessarily is being billed out under his or her NPI. I mean, I see that all the time when I work remotely, right? Well, it's like, oh, that claim went out under me and I didn't really know that, or I didn't know the specifics of it. And I think to your point about the plan of care, I mean, I think in, in any group of any size that we typically work with, I don't see a lot of that. I mean, I see how you are cared for will depend upon which physician you see. Like, you know, I, I injured my shoulder a few weeks ago because I'm old now. I went to this orthopedic group up here that's somewhat large, right? But how I were treated would probably vary wildly based on which orthopedic surgeon I ultimately saw. I just called and I said, my shoulder's sore. And they're just like, well, which doctor has a schedule opening? And, and that's who you go to, right? Well, but but again, I mean, that's something that an independent practice is going to want to think about. It's like, it shouldn't vary from physician to physician. If you're all on the same page in a practice and you have decided to merge your collective skill set into one practice setting, I would hope that you have some standards of care around that practice setting because we've seen it so many times on the compliance end. We talked about audits earlier. It just takes one to take down the entire organization. And 
putting in standards of care uh, in addition to the well-publicized standards of conduct is going to go a long way in avoiding decision-making exactly like yours, Scott, where the treatment is going to depend on a spin of the wheel and it's landed on Dr. X and you get Dr. X's level of care. Well, and I can't say that they're doing it, but I, you know, who knows? Yep. So Stephanie, I want to, I want to kick this other question to you. So talking about submitting claims, another question that was asked today, which I thought was again, a very good question. Um, if, if a provider sees a patient today, but doesn't complete their notes for up to 48 hours, is it okay that we bill for that visit on the date that the patient was actually here in the office? So I'm going to clarify because it's a little vague, but first I want to say you will use the date of service the patient's in the office, but you most definitely will not bill until that note is done. And this is a huge issue because we have our own client, Sean. We went through this. I'll give an example that didn't turn out well. And luckily, we were the ones to find this. Um, but we had a client who had, they're, they're a large organization. They have multiple providers with different tech, technology, um, you know, ability, I guess, is what I could say here. Uh, it came down to the fact that a provider struggled with it. They didn't want to use the system, so they're using transcription. Well, think about it this way. First of all, does your organization have coders? Most of the time the people we're working with, unless they're in a large hospital system or a large physician group, no coders. So what does that mean? You have a biller. What does a biller do? They work billing edits. They do not review your documentation. So what happened in the situation we had is the billing team has their own workflow. They're making sure they're keeping AR moving, getting stuff out the door so they don't have long turnaround times. But it's not their job function to be going after the providers and making sure notes are finished like it would be for a coder. So um, the scenario we ran into is the provider was using transcription. So number one, that was a massive issue because billing's going out within two days, but yet transcription takes five to seven. Um, on top of that, uh, the regular transcriptionist was out for an extended leave for whatever reason. And the company they had filling in did not have good processes in place for their own staff and somehow an entire week's worth of notes did not get done. So we just happened to find through, you know, regular uh, quarterly auditing that notes were not complete and it uncovered the whole situation in the workflow process. But, you know, at the end of the day, situations like this could go years without anybody knowing there's no documentation. And then what do you, what happens when an auditor comes in from the payer, they want that note. And Sean and I even had another situation. It was a different situation, different provider, but we had another situation where the provider wasn't using the system properly. So templates were not being generated into documents and we were looking three years back. So right. you've got three years, then first of all, it's a lot of work on the administrative side to go back, make sure notes are done give the provider a list of notes to finish and make sure that it's done compliantly and then add your explanation as to why three years ago it's not there. And then also <laughs> can the provider recall the encounter? Who knows? Oh, That's right. And I agree with you, Paul. I mean, yeah. you know, if you're seeing 20 patients a day, five days a week, yeah. 40 weeks a year, that's, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's just uh, no way. Okay. I, yeah, but yeah, no. <laughs> here's the here here's the other thing, and here's the bigger problem that you run into. If you bill for services for which no documentation exists in your system, you have potentially violated the False Claims Act. Yeah, it's a it's a fraudulent claim. It's a false. It's a potentially false claim. Mm -hmm. So well and and. Real quick, too, um, I want to add, don't just think E&M services. We've had the same That's scenario. Right. The large client uh, labs were an issue because labs were built. But and think about it. Depending on the lab being used, the equipment may not be new enough to process. There was an issue with vitamin D. It yep. would take at least a week. So every claim I reviewed with vitamin D was ready to bill within a couple of days. But yet that's not coming back 
and what happens if the test ultimately does not get run. And and you have the same problem with in-office minor procedures. Mm-hmm. We've seen this. We've seen this at one of our clients, Scott, uh, with an urgent care center where the, the, the minor procedures are being performed, but they're not being documented and they're getting onto the routing slip and they're getting billed and there's no documentation in the record. I mean, you know, if it's a laceration repair that happened a month ago, are you really going to remember the actual dimensions of that wound? Probably not. No. Hmm. Go ahead. You were going to say something, Scott? No, I think it's just that I'm a wordsmith sometimes. And what I was thinking was in the scenarios that we are describing, you face a likelihood of being accused of fraud. I think it, that's it, it's probably semantics in that way where, you know, you haven't actually like fr- fraud requires intent. And it's like if you did the work, the problem is by not having I mean, we end up in the same place, right? By not working, if you're going to create a, a, what I'll call like a well-oiled workflow machine for these processes, you need to understand like when your deliverables come in and build your claims filing around that, whether it's transcription, lab results, anything that, you know, you understand in this situation, we have to make sure that we have the right things because, you know, like the scenario that we just talked about with the transcriptionist missing in action for a few days, right? It's like all of a sudden we've appended one aspect of this machine, but the machine is just keeping on humming, right? The machine doesn't have a checkpoint for validating the receipt of transcription services, right? So the, the machine just kind of steps over that process. And now you're in this situation where you have potentially dozens of claims that are, have gone out the door and it can happen with, you know, lab results or lacerations or anything really, right? It's That's like right. in that vitamin D scenario, if there's some hiccup in the, in the delivery of the results and suddenly you've got all these claims, like I say, I mean, you're going to be defending yourself against fraud, whether that was your intent or not. Right. And that's why I said potentially, uh, a, a potential violation of the False Claims Act. Yeah. And and here, to your point, though, Scott, you know, intent, it's really interesting because over the last couple of years, what in, in the cases that I've been engaged with, the government has actually come out in their opening and in their closing statements and have actually said, we no longer have to demonstrate that there was an intent to commit fraud. We just merely have to be able to demonstrate that bad claims have been submitted. Now, is that the standard that the, the juries and or if it's a bench case, the judge is going to say, oh, OK, look, I agree with you. There's three things that the government needs to be able to demonstrate or at least one of these three things. Right. That somebody was knowingly submitting a claim that they knew to be false Two, they were acting with deliberate ignorance, meaning it, it's the ostrich with the head in the sand um, situation. And three, uh, whether they were uh, acting with um, reckless disregard, right? Uh, So it's knowingly deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard. And those are the three things. And the way that you eliminate, at least for me, right? So when I'm in court and and I'm testifying or if I'm I'm in deposition or whatever it is, and and I get asked a question about, you know, how, how do you avoid a fraudulent claim, right? I tell people all the time, for me, where the government's looking for three things, I'm looking for three things, and it's really simple. One, was the claim reasonable, right? Were the services rendered reasonable? Two, were they appropriate? And three, were they medically necessary for the reason why the patient presented today? So let me let me we got we got a really good um question let me see this question hey jeff smith thanks so much um so chronic care management ah paul spencer my friend my expert some of the practices affiliated with the hospital i work for considering starting ccm chronic care management (laughs) not the hockey manufacturer yeah i i saw that too i'm a big hockey fan too jeff so. Yeah, with patients who meet yeah, this criteria. Yeah, as well. Um, I think we all are. Unfortunately, my 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 Boston Bruins are uh, a bit problematic. My so, team moved. My team moved to another state. That's an even bigger problem. <laughs> so, so he says, um, with patients who meet criteria, 
do your guests have any thoughts on billing, coding pitfalls, things to avoid, things to do that they frequently see aren't done that should be? I don't think this impacts my inpatient hospital, but perhaps some of our system-owned clinics. Jeff, that's a fantastic question, and you know what? Yes to all of it. Paul, I want you to kind of um, go Red Wings. Oh, man, we got a Detroit guy. My, my friend Ben will love you. He lives just outside of uh, Detroit and Allen Park. So. All right. So so let's, let's jump on this, Paul, because I know CCM. Yeah. You and I have had a lot of conversations. and We've done a lot of work in this area. Scott, I know you've engaged as Stephanie has as well. But, Paul, um, because yeah. I've abused you the most in this area, I'd like for you to kind of kind of take it away. First rule of chronic care management, and this just comes from seeing uh, other organizations fall into this, uh, into this trap, do it yourself. Um, and the reason why I say that, I mean, there are a lot of vendors out there. When this was first offered as a benefit through CMS, there were a lot of vendors out there saying, well, you know, there are a lot of moving parts to this. Let's put forward uh, a way to collect all of the data that they're asking for in the chronic care management guidelines, and we'll just farm it out to another company and they'll do it separately. What I have seen is that there's always either something missing. Uh, there, it is too easy to miss very small things like medication uh, reconciliation, like contact with the patient, such as uh, you know the other big thing that I'm seeing that is missing from a lot of that outside documentation is uh, you know meaningful education to the patient. Uh, you know I. It's wonderful that uh, everybody thinks that just uploading information to a patient portal uh, is uh, sufficient for patient education. Uh, let's remember the age group that we're dealing with here when we're uh, performing chronic care management services uh, for CMS beneficiaries. A uh, great many of them are older. Uh, you know, to my 80-year-old father-in-law's credit, he now has an iPhone. Uh, we're dragging him kicking and screaming into the modern age. But uh, the most important thing is to do it yourself. And second, you have to make certain that your non-clinical staff understands their responsibilities. Uh, it's an, yes, it is a practice slash physician build service, but a, a great amount of chronic care management services are based on non-clinical staff interacting with that patient and understanding where they're coming from. So uh, those are the two biggest things that I can uh, offer you as far as chronic care management. Yeah, Stephanie, I know you've had some uh, some time in this world as well. Anything you wanna add to that? Yeah, I just wanna highlight what Paul said when he used the word meaningful. Um, you know, unfortunately, this is one of those things where, and Sean, I mean, we hear this from people in different areas too, but they come forward and they're like, oh, there's a new code, they're paying for it, let's do it. Um, right. But it just becomes checking boxes to get paid, but think about it. it. This really is leading into the whole thing that, you know, Paul, you've mentioned a couple times today with quality-based care. Um, this is intended to help the patients and fill in gaps of care so that they're remaining stable, they're managing their diseases better. This is not checking boxes to get paid. This is meant to help the patients um, and, and prevent further deterioration or further progression in their diseases. So um, I think for sure the meaningful part needs to be there. It shouldn't be discussions about, um, you know, the money side of things only. There should be clinical discussions about improvement. And unfortunately, the only time, and maybe it's just because I, I am on the billing and coding side that I don't always hear these discussions with clients, but the only time I've really heard uh, discussions surrounding larger focuses on the quality side is when Scott and I have worked with a large um, uh, organization that was focusing on quality-based reimbursement. So it, it really needs to be that mindset instead of only fee-for-service mindset and checking off your boxes. Yep. So our, our, I'm only getting, uh, let's see if I can um, do this. Nope. Okay. Um, so our, our 
old colleague, our good fr- not old, I didn't mean it in that way. Uh, our our past uh, uh, colleague and our really good friend, Betty Stump. It's so good to see you, Betty. I hope you're doing well. And congratulations. See, people don't think that I read this stuff, but I do. Congratulations on your uh, transition over to your new career at 3M. They are so fortunate and so lucky to have you. You're just an incredible wealth of knowledge and you're a great person. And uh, I and everybody else from Doctors Management, we wish you nothing but the best and continued success. Um, so what Betty has said is, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I caught myself, Betty. Okay. Um, what Betty said is, I've seen a lot of progress notes for CCM documented by medical assistants, but no monthly overview assessment and update by the actual clinician. The CCM visit from the MA is being billed as CCM services, but there is no document, documented evidence um, uh, that the services, um, that the licensed clinician was part of the encounter. Um, she is 100% correct, and that is a huge problem, and you run into this with these third-party vendors as well. You've got to maintain control of services such as CCM. So important. Scott, anything you want to add on CCM? You know, I, I, I agree with everything that's been said. And I think there is just this challenge um, with any service that requires performance of and management of and calculation of minutes over a, a month, right? No matter what it is. And I, I think from a workflow perspective, you know, Personally, it's the thing I like the least about these programs because it right. kind of requires you to like carry a stopwatch and be like, well, what am I doing? And how do I, how do I engage the clinician? How mm-hmm. do I demonstrate, you know, the ongoing severity of the patient, the need for the service? How do I differentiate between if I'm going to be reviewed for this, what looks like it's meaningful intervention versus like make work? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, those are the things that I worry about. And I think mm-hmm. just that notion of having to episodically log time makes it incredibly easy to be non-compliant. And you find yourself looking at this and saying, you know, where we started off a few minutes ago is this notion of, you know, the, the, sometimes the, somebody will come in almost like it's a new, a new thing. Like, Oh, I heard they came out with this. How do we do it? Right. Like it's a new product or a new like ride in an amusement park. And then you try to actually do it. And the mechanics of it are just not worth the money. Yeah. Right. And well, I, so I think you got to be very deliberate about that. Yeah. And just, just to wrap up the uh, point, the, one of the biggest challenges when this uh, benefit was introduced is that it was kind of uh, dropped on EMR vendors as a new benefit. And That's none right. of the, none of the EMR vendors at the time were ready for it. Hence all of these independent contractors stepped into the breach and right. you had quality variation between all of those vendors. Now is a very good time to reach out to your electronic medical record vendor to see if they have a useful workflow template, anything to report this uh, service. Uh, It's been out there for a few years. I would hope that your EMR vendor has come into the modern world just enough to be able to address this. Uh, And, you know, while you're at it and while you're on the phone with them, talk to them about 2021 E&M guidelines and see what they're doing for (laughs) templates there too. Absolutely. Great points. And I put this up, um, my good friend, Dr. John Lynn out in um, Arizona. It's good to have you joining us, Doc. Hope you're well. He's right. His response to Betty uh, is spot on. They're just asking for clawbacks by being non-compliant with the billing of these services. So um, absolutely couldn't agree more. All right. So I, I saved the last part of uh, the show today to be able to talk about something that, Paul, you just sort of drove us right into. Uh, but I want to start with Stephanie on this one because she's the most vocal of the group. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I feel like if I don't start with her, she's going to get upset because she, you know, she just she wants to go there. So <laughs> here we go. <laughs> 2021 Evaluation and Management Service Guidelines. Everybody thought that they were going to be an administrative simplification, and I think they've turned into more of a headache and a hassle than they've been worth the transition over. Um, Because everybody is talking about the fact that, oh, you're billing based on time, you're billing based on medical decision-making. Folks, it's time 
or medical decision-making in conjunction to medical necessity. You can't leave out the medical necessity. And the most important thing to keep in mind is even though we are no longer counting the elements of the history and the examination, we are still required to have a clinically relevant or clinically appropriate history and examination. So none of, none of the MACs have taken away any of their language that says you no longer have to have a history or exam. It still says the absence of one of the key components could result in a denial or downcoding of your service. It still says that in the Medicare guidelines. So Stephanie, take us through the biggest challenges that you've been dealing with thus far in 2021 with the new ENM services. And then I kind of want to go around the horn, if you will, uh, with Scott, and then we'll finish out with Paul. Take it away. Sure. All right. So I have to say one of the things I'm noticing over the past month and, you know, we've been really busy. So it's one of those things where our heads down, focusing, trying to help everybody that, you know, we just we have a lot of auditing going on, which is good. But one of the things I started realizing over the past month is the fact that when I'm meeting with these providers for one on one education sessions, the first thing I've been asking this year is, are you aware of the changes? And then I ask, did you receive training? Or some of the clients, we all personally did training and I'm aware. So I'll say, okay, did you attend training? And usually the answer is, uh, yeah, I think I, I think I remember that. Or no, I didn't attend and I don't know what you're talking about. Um, the issue here is that when providers are aware of guidelines, or I should say what I am seeing for the most part, is that they've only taken away what sounded good to them. So the, the largest issue that I'm noticing over audits in the past two weeks is related to time. So we have, actually I've seen this specific statement from multiple clients where it says time component, 30 minutes, <laughs> nothing more. And then in, in one example, it said time component, 30 minutes, the patient was resolved. There were no current complaints and they were being discharged from current care to come back on a PRN basis. So, you know, it's, it's not adding up. And that particular provider was receptive after we started to discuss it, but they reached out to me completely confused as to why I did not accept time in their, in their audit. Um, so, you know, I, what, what this really is making me realize is that, you know, first of all, training is always good. I think training is necessary, but we all know until it applies to you personally, it usually does not hit home. Um, providers, especially with auditing, for example, they're not going to know whether or not they actually, you know, retained the information appropriately to we're looking at their, their patients. Um, and I've, you know, I, I think it's, I would say it's pretty sad at this point that I've gotten to the point where I'm not surprised when I'm seeing audits with high error rates this year. Um, usually it is the same scenario for all of the variances, for example, level four down to level three. Um, but I'm not surprised because it's a lack of providers really paying attention to that. The fact that yes, this was a change and it's not working. Scott? Thought? So uh, I, I certainly agree with that. I mean, I, I feel like every um, larger group I've worked with has had at least one or two providers who have been uh, over the moon on time, as I say, like where the time is just materially deviating from the medical decision making from the medical necessity in a way that I don't understand. And while, while these guidelines have given more license to different activities and how they're counted within time, I do think it creates downstream risk for a provider in terms of, you know, if you are claiming you know, that the time spent documenting in the medical record is a driving factor in your time uh, attestation, but the note is largely similar to the previous note, or it includes, you know, it's almost the reverse, right? It includes copious amounts of review of systems and exam for a patient who maybe has an acute complaint. So one of the parts about these guidelines as a non-clinician that gives me some uh, leeriness is, is as I've always always said to the doctors I work with, it's not my job to tell you what to examine. And I don't really do that now. I look for these elements to be covered and I try to explain what the risks are. I do, th I mean, I've had providers who are in primary care who are doing not just 99215s, but they're tacking on one and two units of prolonged service. And this patient had like a bug bite and I'm, I'm trying to understand like how they're spending all this time. 
so I do think that sort of secondary to that, I think there's some misunderstandings related to the way that the guidelines define certain things, right? So we've been given some clarity around something like a new diagnosis with an uncertain prognosis. And, and what I try to tell the providers I'm working with is this is where the history and exam does become important because I can only try to glean severity from what you tell me. So if you tell me that, you know, as and, and I'm telling you things that have actually happened to me this year. If you're telling me that a patient with a cough is suspicious for a URI and therefore that's a new diagnosis with uncertain prognosis, I have a very high evidentiary burden to show how this risks the morbidity or mortality of that patient. So that's sort of the second thing. Uh, and the last thing before I defer to Paul, because if I don't stop, I'll be talking about this at 11 o'clock Pacific time. Um, there, there is misunderstanding in things such as independent interpretation uh, of imaging, right? So one of the things that I find myself doing as an auditor is whenever I see results popping into a chart that I'm looking at, I have to go, if I'm in the EMR, I've got to go investigate and figure out like who ordered it? Is it part of this group? Because a lot of times the provider is saying that something is an independent review of a test, but it's just something that they ordered at the last visit, right? And these make sort of substantive differences in how we count and define lines of service, right? So, you know, we as auditors have to do the work of going through and determining whether or not the provider has correctly applied the terminology, but it's creating some frustration because to Stephanie's point, I find myself doing a lot of downcoding and because they haven't been trained or educated on things, they're asking those same questions, right? They're coming to me and they're saying, well, I was told I could count all of the time I spent on this day. And I'm coming back and saying, well, I, while I appreciate that, you've not accounted for it in any sort of medically necessary way. And I think at the end of the day, you know, while we do have this time or MDM calculation, if, you're, if, if a provider's time is materially deviating upwards from medical decision-making, chart after chart after chart, you know, the way I've described that is in like a school of sharks, right? Your fin is out of the water and somebody's going to see you and you need to make sure that your documentation will uh, survive that review because it's, it's going to come, right? Because you're just, you're, you're off of the billing curve. And so in that respect, um, you know, I think as people get more used to the nuances of them, that will hopefully improve, but those are some things that we're definitely seeing. Absolutely. All right, Paul. So two things, and I kind of want to work backward, uh, playing off of Scott's point with regard to uh, data as one of the elements of medical decision making. Before 2020, it was, I, I didn't know if I'm speaking for the other, other auditors here, but it was exceedingly rare to use data as one of those two elements that would determine the level of medical necessity. We were really focused on the acuity of the presenting problem or problems and the management options for those problems. To me, uh, when you're getting into the minutia of, you know, it, does this order count as a test? Does this review count as a test? You know, again, you know, try to think of data as like the third element, you know, something that you may need uh, to reach that level rather than uh, pulling your hair out and thinking about the number of labs and the number of x-rays and medical tests that you've ordered. Uh, because, uh, you know, the key really is still, you know, the driver is still medical necessity and the driver is really going to be uh, one of the biggest things. And I know Dr. Lin is uh is uh, is disagreeing with me here, but you have to think of acuity as it applies to medical necessity, and then you have to think of the uh, just the the intensity of the treatments that you're being that are being brought forward. Yeah, and I don't think Dr. Lin was disagreeing with you. I think his, I, I think his point was, you know, data has always been useful. It's been useful prior to 2021, yeah. but yeah, no, I, I I didn't I didn't see it as him yeah. disagreeing yeah. with what it and, is that you're saying. Um, you know. There it is. You know, we yeah. were focused on the number and acuity. So yeah. I, I, I agree. And I think these are all great points. Okay. Well, and I, and I think ahead, I don't want to I don't want to speak for Paul, but I think when, when we think about the way in which data has changed. Right. So if I think about data pre 2021, in order to get a moderate level of data, you typically had to order labs, imaging and medicine, EKG. Uh, radiology labs, right? So in right. theory now, I could have a patient who comes in and says, you know, I have a 
a cough and I was running a light fever and the doctor is going to order, you know, I have a sore throat. So the doctor orders strep, flu, COVID, one, two, three. But in reality, it's probably not a moderate level case at that point. Right. No, yeah. that's a great point. Okay. And, All right. and one, one last thing that I wanted to bring forward. Uh, sure. So I'm in something of a special uh uh, place uh, among the four people here. We all work for the same organization, but as part of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists, which is our NamUs arm, I'm the guy who answers the ask the auditor questions at the end of every day that come into our uh, queue and are answered. And this is a good time to pitch the NamUs conference. It'll be in Clearwater, Florida, December 6th to the 8th. You can meet us all in 3D. Uh, consider coming. But uh, you know, one of uh, one of the things that I have noticed as a pattern with the questions that are coming into there is how many uh, auditors are asking questions that have come in from their physicians about what things that are left over from 2020 still need to be documented. And I'm thinking right. about a question that I received uh, yesterday and the day before regarding chief complaint. You know, because now we have, well, it's a medically appropriate history, medically appropriate examination. Right. I actually got the question, you know, is documenting a chief complaint still mandatory? And guess what? Documenting a chief complaint is still required for all levels of service. Absolutely you know, and, is. and it's those little pieces of misunderstanding where they said medical decision making and time. OK, everybody off to your corners. Let's see how this works out. Right. Don't forget the fundamentals of Dr. Larry Weed and the soap note that was invented in 1969 when I was three uh, and unable to get into Woodstock, where uh, he was bringing forward a problem-oriented medical record. You have right. to state the problem. You know, you have Absolutely. to bring forward a meaningful piece of uh, scientific document, documented <clears throat> evidence about how that patient was upon presentation and what are you were do doing to alleviate the symptomology? Absolutely. Great points. And to Dr. Lynn, you are right. You know, we are still using the old rules for anything that is non-office or other outpatient visits. That's a great point. All right. So I think we've had a wonderful conversation today. Before people start getting offline with us, a couple of things I want to talk about. We have some incredible upcoming guests in November and December. Um, and I always have people asking me, what books am I reading? So one of the books that I'm reading right now is this one. I love it here. This is my, he's become a very good friend. And I, and, and um, uh, I, I just, I love hearing this guy speak. His name's Clint Pulver. Uh, if you don't know Clint, um, he is an incredible motivational speaker. Um, he is a former drummer for Tim McGraw, for Carrie Underwood. Uh, he was on America's Got Talent. The guy is just absolutely unbelievable. Clint is coming on the show. Um, we're going to be talking about his book, I Love It Here, how great leaders create great organizations. Their people never want to leave. And I think, I just think he's going to play the drums for us while we're live. Um, also, I have coming up, Another book. I got to do a lot of re folks doing these shows is not as easy as just turning on the camera and going. Uh, I have Tracy Brown coming on the show. Uh, Tracy is unbelievable. Uh, her book is How to Detect Lies, Fraud, and Identity Theft. Uh, again, all compliance topics. Tracy will be on with us. Um, she is absolutely incredible. Uh, I, I've seen her in her presentations, unbelievable. And then one of my other guests, we have a, we have, I think we have like eight or nine scheduled between now and the end of December. Um, two other books I have to read to get myself well prepared by Candy Worley. It takes four generations to tango, and it takes four to tango. These are two incredible books, and we're going to be talking about. Um, what it takes to work and live with people. Uh, again, these are all things that we're going to tie into the business of medicine, to healthcare compliance, and to the things that matter most to you each and every single day. Um, again, I want to say, as always, thank you to my special guests, 
for being here with me. I know you ladies and gentlemen are slammed with audits. We're auditing what more than a million claims a year in our organization across the country for clients. Thank you for taking time out of your day to be here, Paul, Scott, and Stephanie. Um, and to each of you out there, thank you so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us for an hour and going through some of the regulatory compliance hurdles that exist. On behalf of myself, Sean Weiss, our crew at the Compliance Guy Live, thank you so much. Take care, and until next time, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. <laughs>